Andrew Check again recording from my home along the Clearwater River in Idaho County, Idaho, and uh, joining me once again, giving me some of his very valuable time is Don McIntosh, senior reporter with the Northwest Labor Press. Uh, Don, I'm going to let you explain that, but I will have to say that, uh, as I mentioned in my email, I just started receiving uh, the print edition, which I'm truly uh, enjoying. It. I, I still have that old sense of that tactical feel of sitting down and reading a newspaper. So, Don, thank you for joining me. And um, we're going to talk about the Broadway Corridor Project in Portland and project labor agreements and community benefit agreements and maybe get into uh, some uh, labor record with our current administration. But first, you, you want to reintroduce yourself to uh, whoever's going to listen to this? Sure, yeah. So basically, I consider myself a labor Right. And then, yeah, like I say, now they got a mail subscription right here in Idaho County, Idaho, that I get uh, delivered thanks to our, our great civic institution, the United States Post Office, a whole a whole shelf right there we could be looking into. But uh, so, Don, what I picked up this article from uh, and you've been covering it before in other issues, but uh, August 7th issue the Broadway Corridor Breakthrough, and in it you speak of how there's been an agreement now between the different players, both for uh, uh, a community benefit agreement and project labor agreement. Uh, we were talking about project labor agreements. Um, do you want to explain uh, the, uh, the background to those? Sure, yeah. Uh, so, so just generally project labor agreements and so, you know, a project labor agreement is uh, nothing more or less than it's an agreement by a, a, a general contractor or a developer to use union labor on their projects. Uh, there's a variety of reasons that they might want to do this. We're talking about in the construction industry. Um, one thing I would say, you know, people outside of the union construction world don't have a very good understanding of, of what that what that is about. And um, I would say, uh, strangely enough, in some ways, the, uh, the union building trades are a little bit like the medieval guilds, and I say that in a positive sense. What they do is they sort of uh, they try to have um, sort of corner the market on a particular kind of skilled labor and use that uh, to basically to uphold standards so that people aren't undercutting each other in terms of wages and so forth. And they also, at the same time, uh, serve a really important role in uh, assuring quality. Uh, you know, they have really uh, state-of-the-art uh, training uh, and apprenticeship programs where, you know, you come in and you, you, you earn while you learn a skilled trade in the construction industry. Um, and so, you know, they, they, they are a little bit in some ways uh, uh, unlike other unions. You know, typically when you think about a union, you're thinking maybe Norma Ray, a bunch of oppressed workers, they rise up, they form a union, they get a little respect because they bargain together. Um, there's certainly an, out, a, a, you know, an aspect of that that still exists, of course, in the building trades. But I'm just saying they, they're operating on a different model. Oftentimes, 
with the hiring hall. You know, when, when you're Norma Ray, maybe you want to work at the textile factory for 10 or 20 years if you can make a career out of it. But if you're a construction worker, you work yourself out of a job every few months. The project gets done and you go back to the uh, out of work list until the next one comes along. Uh, so, so that's sort of the, just the general background of how they operate. So, you know, one of the things historically that they've really pushed for is just to get, uh, uh, you know, their construction employers to, to agree to use union labor um, and not what sometimes they refer to as rat contractors, you know, non-union contractors that are generally going to be paying less with really much weaker benefits and so forth um, and squeezing more uh, profit, I suppose, out of, out of the construction uh, work that they do. Uh, project labor agreements have a history um, with the, the federal government and with state and local governments. Uh, I think back in the day they were more common. One of the reasons that you would sign a project labor agreement, by the way, uh, historically, is that if you didn't, <laughs> your project would get struck. So you've got, you know, a dozen different trades from plasterers to iron workers to, uh, to carpenters and so forth, all collaborating to, to, to put a big building together. Um, if you have one or two of those go up with picket lines and the others show solidarity by not crossing the picket lines, all of a sudden you've got a very expensive problem. You've got a construction site, you've got a bank loan that you've got to pay on, uh, and the work's not happening. So there's, in that respect, there's economic pressure that historically unions used in order to, to get labor peace, basically, where they got a fair uh, uh, shake. Um, I think in recent decades, you don't see as much of that. And I think uh, there's not as much striking like that. And I think that it's become harder and harder to get those project labor agreements. They've also become very political. So there was a time when you saw more Democratic elected at the federal level and other, uh, elsewhere basically saying, yeah, we're pro-union, we agree with the mission of you know, elevating working people, and so we're going to sign a project labor agreement, or we're going to encourage that. And again, you're seeing less and less of that, and they're seeing it. Sometimes what happens is they play the union contractors off against minority contractors. They say, well, there's very few minority contractors that are union, and we want to give this to these historically excluded minority and women-owned contractors. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's some sort of tension and political tension there, um, that sort of leads up in a way to what uh, a community benefit agreement is and also what happened here in Portland and what's been happening. Well, you, got, yeah, you covered a lot of ground there. You know, I, I just retired from the IBEW, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. I still carry a card with the laborers. Uh, uh, some great points there, Don, uh, Go talking about uh, the, the trades, as we call them, the construction trades. Um, the apprenticeship program, I believe it's the largest non-government a vocational training program in the United States. Uh, every time I, I go through, I take the airport uh, bypass and to go visit my daughters up in Longview, I, I drive by with pride past the training center that IBEW has on that road. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It looks like a new structure there with the national electrical contractors. Um, and I think again, going back to those project labor agreements and the benefits for the contractors and all is that the unions are delivering this uh, highly trained, verified uh, workforce uh, at basically at a phone call. I mean, the, the needs, I always tell people that uh, uh, there's a reason why contractors like to go with the hiring hall is because they don't have to put a help wanted ad out. They don't have to have a big HR department. They One call does it all. There's actually, you, you might not realize it, but there's actually some really good reasons to sign with the union. 
one of them is the ready access to that labor pool, in theory at least. You know, you could you could staff up for a big job or staff down if you don't have one and not have people on the payroll that you have to worry about because they're going to go in and out of different jobs. The other is, quite frankly, they do provide uh, remarkably generous and efficient uh, benefits that you really, as a small employer, cannot, there's no way you could meet that. I mean, basically, the, the standard in the union world is full family health care. So if you're working as a, uh, as a full-time as an electrician, you, all your family is covered at a pretty, and usually a pretty generous uh, health insurance. You've also got, oh my God, you've got, have you heard of this? A pension, uh, right? So, <laughs> right? So, you know, when you retire after a life, you know, 20 or 30 years of hard work, you can retire with dignity and not have to worry about paying the bills and so forth. That's really a union thing now. And, uh, and, and the non-union side, you're just not really seeing that much. You're lucky to get a 401k, which is basically a glorified tax deferred savings plan. It's not a guarantee. Uh, you know, if your investments don't pan out and they use, you know, <laughs> then you're out of luck. But, you know, pension is really a, a big difference. And there's others, too. There's, a, you know, training funds and, and so forth, uh, vacation cases. So uh, where, where was that going with that? <laughs> you, you know more than I, it sounds like, in terms of how that world works. But I just think people outside of it aren't familiar with it. Uh, I will say there's one, there's to, to, to add a little wrinkle, there is some tension between uh, you know, in terms of meeting the workforce needs that unions face. On the one hand, they don't want to bring in so many new apprentices and have so many members that too many are sitting out of work because there's not enough work to do. On the other hand, they don't want job calls to go unfilled. You know, if, if the contractor needs those 20 electricians, it's not going to do the union any good if we say, well, we don't have them, right? So they really, there's a tension that the business managers and that the unions face in trying to meet, you know, match uh, 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 demand with supply of labor in that sense. Um, and so what they do is they tend to operate at the higher end of each market where they have a presence. You know, you, you see the union workers on the commercial and industrial uh, jobs. You know, if, if there's a skyscraper, odds are very good. It was built with union labor. You know, and, and part of the reason, too, is, you know, when you're spending, uh, you know, $20 million, $30 million, $100 million on a, on, on, on a construction project, you do not want things to go wrong. You don't want it to be done poorly. You don't want it to collapse, as happened with a non-union job in, in, the, in downtown uh, New Orleans last year. You don't, you, that, that's a terrible disaster. Uh, those guys should have gone union, right? right. Uh, but, you know, uh, so, uh, you know, meanwhile, the residential sector, you know, it tends to be much lower margin, almost exclusively uh, uh, for single-family residential, almost, almost exclusively non-union, unfortunately. And those are hard, dangerous, low-paid jobs uh, too often. Right. And that's a good point. You know, I get I get my newsletter uh, from both my unions. I still get and I also get a great publication by the uh, electrical workers called Electric Worker, uh, where they tout the PLAs. But the 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 newsletter from the locals will talk about you know what's up on the ball, board, what's unfilled and electrical workers. Uh, my, you know, my knowledge of being with them and not that long. I was always with them about 10 years, but I still get something of a pension. And you're right about the, the health care. It was unbelievable, actually. I, uh, my wife kept sending me back at the end of the week to, to check with the, my fellow members. Is, is it really this good? And it, it really yeah. is that good. Uh, you know, it, it, you could have 20 kids and you're not paying another dime. Uh, and you're, you're right. A small contractor could not. I mean, we all know the cost of maintaining health care for a small entity. Uh, so there's that economics of scale. But going back to your point about maintaining that uh, uh, that tension uh, uh, 
you know, we'll see that again with uh, unfilled calls and with electrical workers. And I see it with carpenters, also iron workers, uh, pipe fitters, boilermakers, a lot of traveling as we call and what we call an electrical workers tramping where like the big um, a few years ago, they they crossed Nevada with transmission line and uh, the the traveling, the tramping that as the electrical workers provide this mobile workforce. Right, and then we then we could also get into the storm recovery and all that, and uh, uh, you know I, I don't know if people really appreciate the fact when you see a headline saying a uh, hundred thousand, a half a million, a million people are out of power, and uh, in many cases uh, it's not even news in a week that how quickly it comes back up. But we're kind of off subject there again. The Broadway corridor project, uh, yeah. the, the city got I think twelve block. Um, it used to be a postal. Uh, facility a 12 blocks uh portion is in in portland uh to to work on they signed a project labor agreement uh so that's going to be union uh you, you have a good point there there's that tension with um which could be manufactured when i see some of the criticism that tension with minority businesses i see some of that is kind of uh, astroturf in my opinion uh with uh, uh Chamber of Commerce groups, but that appears to be also being addressed under this, under the uh, Community uh, Benefits Agreement. That's right. Yeah, and I think, you know, let me just sort of lay out the concept a little bit. But but for the project itself and and the the, the milieu of what's happening in Portland. So first of all, the project, you're right. So there's this enormous basically mail processing facility that's effectively in downtown Portland. It's in a part of Portland called Northwest Sort of uh, on the edge of it used to be really a warehouse district, and it was kind of like there was it wasn't residential. But in the last 20 years, uh, there's been a lot of development. Now they call it the Pearl District. You know, they oh they boy, yeah. But yeah. so there's a lot of you know, expensive condos, and it's a nice area to live, and so forth. Well, still stuck in the middle of this is just a great big, enormous, you know, 12 square block uh, uh, postal facility. Well, a few years ago, and and so the city and, and its development agency. Which basically, it's you know, it's a lot of a lot of jurisdictions have them, but they're they're basically meant to to further you know commerce and prosperity and so forth. But they're 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 a big actor in the real estate development world, where in some cases they'll use their power to buy property and then give it over, uh, you know, sell sell it to a private developer for some project which maybe furthers the public purpose. So in this case. Seeing this great big property that's now surrounded by, you know, nice uh, condos and so forth, they thought, well, maybe the postal service could be persuaded to have a more efficient, newer facility uh, up by the airport where the mail's coming in, uh, and, and, and we'll pay for that, and uh, we'll work out a deal where we'll buy this land, uh, this enormous parcel of land, and do something valuable with it. So that's what happened. Um, meanwhile, there's been a there's been kind of a history now in Portland, uh, and this is this is happening a little bit around the country. It gets, it gets back to that sort of racial uh, issue, which is it's not it's worth addressing and not avoiding. 
Uh, you know, historically uh, in the union world, uh, as elsewhere in America, um, you know, uh, blacks in particular, but other you know people of other racial minorities were uh, were were excluded and uh, you know could not become uh, union uh, members. Um, in, in the early '60s, that started to change, uh, and you know, uh, but but there's the kind of a, a legacy effect too because. You know, as you may know, uh, you know, a lot of people get their start in the uh, construction unions because their dad or their uncle or their grandfather was in it, and they told them where to go and where to apply and what you need to do, and gave them some experience. Well, if you were, if you, if your dad and your uncle and your grandfather were excluded for, you know, fifty or a hundred years from that opportunity, you're not going to have those connections, and so you're going to have this perpetuation of these really good, high wage, high skilled jobs uh, going to to white uh, men, men, really. <laughs> so, right. So I think what's happened in recent years in Portland, at least, is that unions have realized that that's a historical inequity. Uh, the construction unions have made real efforts to recruit um, women and minorities um, and, 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 and get them opportunities as well. And so, it, believe it or not, uh, it's actually now the case that if you are a developer who uh, is doing maybe this business with the city or the county or so forth, uh, and they have goals, they want to see uh, historically excluded people get opportunities. If, if you're doing business with them, it really helps to have access to a labor pool that 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 uh, where you're starting to meet some some targets, some goals for minority women participation, for example. And it turns out that the unions are now the the, the better way to do that. If you if you have a city goal that you know like they can't be legally binding, but they'll have a goal like maybe 20 percent you know minority uh, participation as, as as apprentices or as journeymen on a project for a particular craft. Well, it's actually the union that can make that happen now because they have had some success in recruiting people, uh, whereas the non-union sector is still sort of, you know, uh, largely white and male. And so there you go. But uh, so so one of the things, because they were seeing uh, the minority contractors in particular uh, and also the minority community pitted against unions uh, when these things came up, a number of years ago, I think some smart union uh, leaders basically said, "Let's sit down and figure out a way to work together so that all of our needs get met." You know, and what and one of the vehicles they come up with that to do that is called the Community Benefits Agreement, and it's sort of like a PLA, but it's not a PLA. It's a little bit complicated to explain. I won't get on all the all the details, but basically, it's an agreement. It's a commitment to uh, do several things: to have basically like decent high wage jobs in a construction project, but also to, uh, to to make sure that there are opportunities for women and minorities, particularly. And sometimes they'll even do other things. So, uh, for example, in the one that is uh, basically about to be formalized for this um, uh, postal project, they call it the Broadway Corridor is the name for the big project, um, they actually have a, a, a rule that when any hotel or whatever facilities they build there, that the workers who clean those and the workers who do security on those will also not the union, but the, basically the employers can't fight the union. So it's like they're going to be, they're basically quite likely to have union janitors and, and, and uh, 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 security guards. So I just think that's another example of where, uh, you know, rather than working against each other, uh, some of these minority community organizations have really come together in an alliance with the local building trades unions. Um, and they're getting some, you know, some really impressive gains. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and right, I mean, I'm 65. I remember those days in the 60s. Um, it was um, it, it wasn't good, you know, and then get into the trades later. It is absolutely a legacy. Um, and uh, just to kind of put it into the context, I understand it as, uh, you know, I, uh, Pete Hamill, uh, you know, legendary reporter in New York City, uh, looked into it and uh 
you know, looking at from one side, uh, it was, uh, as one construction worker put it, you know, because he's white, his kid gets apprenticeship, right? I mean, they, they get in. I mean, there's no way around that. Uh, but to them, the one, the one worker told Pete Hamill, it's like, this is our, we don't have a trust fund for our kids. You know, this is this is it, this right. is, you know, and uh, on the other side, of course, were these uh, minorities, you know, women, uh, people of color uh, that, you know, were even in a worse position. I always looked upon it is the solution was a bigger uh, pie instead of trying to slice it up, slicing the smaller pie up. But, uh, you know, we've talked about that in the past with neoliberalism and all that, that that failed to meet those needs. But I just want to put that in context uh, just for that moment with people listening. Yes, it's been a legacy. I don't think um, I'm glad you brought up what the unions are doing, because I think a lot of people still look upon the trades in particular as uh, not having addressed that, that they just don't really see uh, some of the real dynamic uh, leadership that's come up to fore. Well, and not every union has and, they, and I don't want to also pretend that there's not still problems. Uh, I actually wrote, recently wrote a story uh, about a noose incident. You know, somebody put a noose on a construction job site, and you know, a woman of color apprentice came upon it and wasn't real happy about that. And actually, it, was, it really prompted a uh, kind of a, a well, there was a big discussion in the local building trains, and they're trying to address that now and have trainings and so forth. You know, there's a certain amount of bigotry and racism in the workforce, uh, and it's certainly not, I would say, like you know, overtly perpetuated by the unions themselves, but these are union workers who are maybe unkind and prejudiced towards their fellow workers. And uh, I think the unions are more and more taking responsibility and trying to address that and said, no, that's not how we treat our, our union and brothers and sisters. That's not a joke. It's not funny. Uh, it's a symbol of, you know, a hundred years of, of, of racial terror and, 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 and mass murder of black people, for example, in the case of the news. You know, so, so uh, again, I don't want to sweep it under the table, but I do think it's worth. I, I do think, in my opinion, there is progress being made uh, in giving these opportunities to people that didn't have them a generation ago. Absolutely. So again, I'm right here in Portland in the Pearl District, uh, one of my favorite spots because there's my mecca right there in the Pearl District is Paul Books. So uh, we're talking about that same area, aren't we? Interesting, uh, very interesting. Uh, Don McIntosh with Northwest Labor Press, a lifelong activist, a labor journalist. I always wonder, you know, you have the business report, you have the business section, uh, you know, uh, everywhere, but you don't have the labor section in the news, do you? You don't have the labor report. So you guys are really doing the work. I, I really appreciate your publication. I appreciate your time now. Unless there's something to add uh, on this uh, uh Don, okay, I asked one other thing I'd like to cover, though, uh, on project labor agreements, because I saw this, that it, it it's not the same as prevailing wage, which some people understand as the Davis-Bacon Act. Uh, and so it's a little different. So it's it's union wage, not uh, 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 prevailing wage. It's, bas- it's basically mandating hiring through the unions. That's right. Yeah, with the project labor agreements, the basis of it is that it'll, it'll be all union. And these days there are, uh, you know, it's harder and harder to get that with public projects. There's some sort of, I don't know, complicated legal restrictions where you can't quite go all the way. But by and large, you can justify it on the grounds of labor peace. There was a recent project that was called the Edith Green Wendell Wyatt Federal Building. It was basically a, a revamp of a 1970s era skyscraper federal office building in downtown Portland. And they had 
basically it was a PLA, but it was it was modified. It didn't say you could only use union labor. It said you could only use union labor with certain exceptions, and those exceptions were uh, opportunities for small minority-owned or women-owned firms, and they could they could take up to ten of their incumbent employees. Uh, but after that, they'd have to dispatch from the union hiring hall and so forth. So there were exceptions acknowledging that it can be hard, uh, you know, for a you know, minority business owner to accumulate capital, to get competitive, to scale up and so forth. And they didn't want to necessarily discriminate against them. Uh, although, frankly, the counter argument is that why don't they just go union? You know, you know, the unions would be happy to have them. But that's another matter. But I think in terms of splitting the middle, uh, they, they did allow a small compromise for that as one example. Interesting. Okay. So... Uh, again, Don, uh, unless you have something to add uh, in our conversation leading up this interview, again, thank you for joining me this morning. Uh, if you have a little more time, uh, gee, what's going to happen in 70-some days, right? The election uh, in labor context, uh, 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 is there anything uh, you want to say about the Trump record on labor other than, um, you know, we, we – uh, uh, I mean, from labor's perspective, uh, almost all internationals have endorsed his opponent. But um, what do you got? This uh, what's your take on that as a journalist? Well, it's funny actually. Uh, the, the, Trump, the Trump thing is actually a long, long conversation, and, and it's potentially, um, you know, obviously he, he's a complicated figure, and and I, I want to start out by saying we think. We don't know, but we think roughly a third of our readership, maybe and generally about a third of union members nationally, probably consider themselves Trump supporters. And so, uh, and there's and it's interesting questions as to why that is and so forth. Um, I'll I'll, co- I'll put out a couple of theories, uh, and one one of them is um, actually I this is a, maybe a little obscure, but there's a, a really important French economist named Thomas Piketty, and uh, he's written a couple of really groundbreaking books about inequality. And his most recent one, one of the things he does is he looks at 40, 50, 60 years of public opinion polling in multiple countries. And he found a remarkable trend. And that was that in the United States with the Democratic Party, in Great Britain with the uh, Labor Party, in France with the Socialist Parties, these were sort of whatever the left, the big left wing party of the country was. What he saw was a shift. And we, this is not complete news, maybe, but what, what you have is a shift. 40, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, the Democratic Party in the United States, statistically, you were most likely to vote Democrat if you were the lowest income. Uh, if you were a low-income worker, you voted Democrat. It was You didn't really think about it. You voted Democrat. Today, that's not the case. Today, the highest education voters vote Democrat. So we really have a profound transformation uh, where before the polarity was around income. Today, it's around education. And so the Democratic Party, in a, to a significant extent, has been, become the party of the professional middle class. It's become the party of the educated. And, you know, <laughs> for those who are educated, they might want to pat themselves on the back and say, oh, well, this just proves we're so smart or whatever. I don't see it that way at all. I, I think it's very disturbing. I think that there's a degree to which, you know, the Democratic kind of political, um, you know, the, the, the leadership has kind of turned its back on working people. And, you know, given that that's the case, that there's more likelihood, I think, that working people are going to look at the other party. Um, and there's, by the way, I would like, to, I would love to see both parties competing for the allegiance of working people. And you did actually used to see that. And in fact, I would even say that Trump makes, in some ways, more of an effort. Um, he, he certainly makes more of an effort than, uh, uh, than Bush did before him. 
uh, to court uh, uh, labor support, their support of union members. Um, I don't. I wouldn't say that you could trust him in terms of the things he says. But I think that there is not as complicated. It's not as simple as just like there's this this bad billionaire who lies all the time and he's evil and, and can never be considered. And when you have at the point at which you've got a third of our readership basically supportive of him, that's something to contend with. And so I and, and I say that because then it ends up informing uh, how we report on it. Uh, we are not like MSNBC that are going to like jump all over him if he t- mistypes something on Twitter and says cafe. We're not going to make a mountain out of a molehill. We're not going to get hysterical about some crazy thing about, you know, he's being controlled by Putin and all that sort of stuff. To me, that loses all credibility. We actually don't really deal with Trump, Trump very, very much. Well, we do report on him. We report on what he did or didn't do when it impacted working people. And that's where the record, I think, speaks for itself. And uh, if you want to hear the record, I'll do my best to summarize it. It's, it's not great. Uh, but it's, it's not the worst ever either. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the one thing I want to say, I'll give him credit for maybe one thing that he did, and that was uh, he renegotiated NAFTA in a way that was positive. Now, it wasn't the glorious uh, uh, treaty that he, he made it out to be, but in fact it was an improvement over the previous NAFTA, which had been negotiated by George Bush Sr. and pushed into a law by Bill Clinton, as you, I'm sure, remember. So, so basically what they did is they increased some requirements about what Mexican labor rights should be. We'll see if those end up being enforced, you know, but, but at least in the, in the paper, it, it, it's definitely an improvement. They also increased the, um, the uh, uh, wage that would have to be paid in order to be treated as uh, tariff-free. Like basically the, the automobiles that are manufactured in Mexico, they now have to pay like $15 an hour to those workers. That was not the case before. It's that, there's no question you can't look at that and say, well, that's an improvement from the standpoint of working people. Um, and so, and then the third thing is they eliminated what this complicated thing called investor state uh, um, dispute resolution. Basically, you had an ability under NAFTA as a corporation, if you didn't like what uh, some Mexican province had passed a law saying you couldn't poison their, their, their mines with chemicals or whatever, you could, you could sue, and this unelected trade tribunal could strike that down and say, oh, no, it's too restrictive of trade. You can't tell this company they can't use this chemical in this Mexican mine or something like that. And so it was really thought of as an egregious anti-democratic thing to have in any kind of trade agreement. Well, that's no longer in, that's no longer in NAFTA. So that's an um, so I'm, I'm running out of breath here. That's, that's pretty much the only thing that he's done uh, in, in th- almost four years uh, that, you know, to benefit working people. You know, he had, he had grand plans and promises. Do you remember the $1 trillion infrastructure that he was going to spend? Right. And this country needs it. We've got bridges that are in trouble. We've got water systems, you know, all kinds of stuff. Serious underinvestment in infrastructure going back 30 and 40 years. Uh, we need it. And he said he was going to do it, and he didn't. Okay, like at the end of the day, like two years in on a Friday, this is what they do. They they announce something on a Friday. Uh, it's known as the day they're trying to kill the news. They don't they don't want people to know about it, so they release the uh, like late late in the day Friday. Oh, by the way, we've got this little plan uh, for infrastructure, and it was a joke. You know, eighty percent of the funds were supposed to come from the states. If the states had money, they'd be doing it now, right? So so the federal government, he says, oh, it's a trillion dollar plan, like just like I promised. Uh, but in the re- in reality, <laughs> only 200 million of it was going to be federal money, and there was conditions, and it was a joke. Nobody took it seriously. It, it didn't go anywhere. So he was not serious about that, and that's unfortunate. Um, you know, he's he has uh, tried to court uh, union voters. He's tried to court the billing trades. He's had meetings with he's had uh, union officials in the White House meeting with them. You know, I, I guess unfortunately that's sort of mostly been PR. Uh, you know, I don't think he's serious about it. When when it, when it, what it really comes down to, if you look at his record in terms of working people is who does he put in charge of the agencies that are supposed to protect us? 
And that is actually what the executive does. It doesn't matter what he tweets. I mean, I don't like his tweets. Fine. You know, et cetera. They're divisive and all that. But it, what really matters is his doing his job or not. His job is the executive. He's the executive branch. And that means he's supposed to faithfully execute the laws. Well, how has he done on that? So what he did is, again and again, you see the pattern of, well, first of all, he didn't even get around to appointing everybody he had the authority to appoint. So he's not a super disciplined or hardworking guy, I'm sorry to say. Uh, secondly, when he did appoint them, the pattern was that they'd be some corporate attorney or lobbyist. They'd be put in charge of basically overseeing the agency that they never liked to begin with. And you saw this at OSHA. You saw this at the Department of Labor. You saw this at the National Labor Relations Board. You know, it's an obscure agency, the National Labor Relations Board. But basically, their job is to uh, uh, protect American workers' right to form a union if they want to. And so you want people in that job who actually care about that mission. But instead, what you had is you put uh, three basically corporate anti-union lawyers uh, in charge of the National Labor Relations Board. And ever since then, they've been rolling back all kinds of improvements that the Obama-era NLRB did. Um, they've made it slower, harder to unionize. Uh, they've made it easier to go non-union. And, and, and the details are probably too complicated to go into. But that's the 10,000-view uh, conclusion that I can, you know, authoritatively tell you is that he really has put people in charge of these agencies that do not uh, have an interest in enforcing the, those protections. Same with same with OSHA. Inspections are down. You know, the agencies demoralized. You know, this is not this, this is not an agency that's run by people who are super gung ho about uh, protecting workers on the job. Right. Well, and then of course now the uh, poster child of uh, appointing someone who's out to dismantle the organization. Uh, he or she is supposed to be developing is uh, the head of the United States Postal Service, the constitutionally mandated uh, agency. And we should be very worried about that. I, I actually, I forgot one other very important thing that he did, which isn't about enforcing the law. It's about the people who work for the federal government. So for about almost 60 years, federal employees have something, some, some semblance of union rights. They were never as strong as private sector union rights. You know, Congress sets the pay, they can't negotiate over pay and so forth. But federal employees, if they choose, have the right to a union, and many many of them do. Uh, and so, uh, but basically they had an existing arrangement, and uh, Trump, by executive order, overturned that. The main things were uh, he didn't think that uh, the federal government should pay a union steward to take time out and do some sort of a union, union business. They had in the federal workforce a provision that basically, the, the justification is basically that we think that Having a process where workers have rights and representation uh, creates a happier, you know, uh, higher morale workforce, uh, you know, and it's just good public policy. So, so there was uh, there were under limited conditions, uh, federal employees who who were elected by their coworkers to be stewards could have some time where they were assigned to do union business. Uh, basically, generally speaking, it would be sitting in on a disciplinary hearing, helping fire a, file a grievance if, if, the, if discipline had been done wrong or, or, or the contract had been violated and so forth. Well, he took that away. He also uh, said that you couldn't even, if there was an unused uh, conference room, let's say, you know, you got a conference room in your federal office building, you want to have a union meeting. Up till now, it's just sitting there unused. You know, you, you, you schedule, okay, we're meeting at 3 o'clock. Well, you can't do that anymore. You have to get to pay commercial rates to, <laughs> to use the, your own office, uh, un, unused uh, federal office space to for union meetings and that kind of thing. There's just a whole bunch of those little things that were in this executive order. Some of them were overturned by a judge, but they're still in process. And I think it really says, it's a really good example of the union question, which side are you on? Well, on this side, in this case, he was not on the side of union uh, federal employees. And I think 
you know, to his disgrace. Shame on him. Those are good points. And, and Don, uh, once again, we've talked about this before, uh, your uh, recorded interviews before, which I replay. Uh, they're so enlightening, man. I mean, you really hit it. So uh, my what I see here uh, is this tension for labor. I mean, uh, right. Uh, the new NAFTA, which was a bipartisan agreement, the old NAFTA was a bipartisan agreement. And I make an argument that some of the worst wounds on labor have been bipartisan um, uh, finance, DREG and all that. But uh, against those, though, you have the NLRB. Uh, and I see the problem with that, the National Labor Relations Board. And, uh, you know, you may. You know, you make it perfectly clear how anti-labor his appointments are. But these are things that go back and forth depending on what administration you get um, and uh, how strong uh, uh, we have it. And, you know, you made a comment about how you'd like to see uh, the parties compete for labor. I'm 100 percent with that. So I see the kind of a uh, uh, maybe it's just a different fronts on the same battlefield. You have the macros of uh, what drove 30, 40% of union membership, uh, maybe higher and just on working class towards uh, Trump and Republicans and the realignment with the parties. Uh, But then you really get kind of into the nitty gritty of the NNRB uh, and such um, uh, almost petty, uh, but again, choosing what side you are on, Actions like prohibiting the use of the conference rooms. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, you know, very enlightening what you're pointing out here. Well, and, that, and so and with that tension is very real, and I think maybe worth speaking to, too. So, uh, and we, we face it as a labor uh, union institution, and I think unions face it, too. You know, on the one hand, you know, those who are paying closest attention to the union movement can tell the difference between, you know, sort of maybe a fair weather friend, somebody who'll do you a favor sometimes and might stab you back occasionally if you're not paying attention. That's on the one side. And on the other side, somebody that's really kind of coming to get you. And this is the sad thing. It didn't used to be the case. You know, there, you know, uh, basically the, in a large scale, you know, organized labor has been sort of aligned with the Democratic Party basically since FDR in, 19, in the mid-1930s. Before that, it was actually the other way around. Uh, Republicans were seen as the more reliable labor ally. You look at Davis Bacon you talked about earlier, those were both Republican congressmen that passed that prevailing wage law at the federal level. So, But that, but that was the reversal that, that FDR engineered, where the Democratic Party started to deliver real uh, changes that helped working people and the union movement attached to that. Um, unfortunately, as you alluded to, uh, it certainly is the case. You know, in the 70s, I think the Democratic Party uh, really lost its way uh, and sort of maybe began to take for granted. Uh, you know, labor was, I think, maybe considered the, the workhorse and the cash cow of the Democratic Party, but not necessarily the one calling the shots. So, you know, they sort of would be grudgingly included as a constituency. But a lot of labor, a lot of Democratic electeds, as they competed for uh, big donations from Wall Street, you know, really lost sight of uh, any idea of serving working people in general or, or being friends of the union movement. Now, there are certainly plenty who are. I don't want to uh, ignore that. Um, even even when you look at NAFTA, for example, the big betrayal, it was only about only about a third of Democrats voted for that. You know, shame on them. But we've got to remember that two thirds of Democrats did vote against that. You know, and it was mostly Republicans that delivered that NAFTA, you know, anti anti labor uh, trade agreement. So uh, where was I going with this? The, the sad thing is, I wish it were otherwise. But the sad thing is, 
the Republican Party year after year is getting more and more anti-union. And you can see this. Nobody reads these things, by the way. But every four years, these political parties produce a new platform document. They usually must sort of like a lot of you know, speechy rhetoric, but they do to some extent lay out what they would like to do uh, if elected. And so you can examine those and you can see that year, uh, every four years, the Republican official National Republican Party platform becomes more and more anti-labor. They didn't used to be at all. They didn't. They, they were competing for labor votes, I think. But in recent years, they've been more for right to work, which, you know, they should get on to that subject. Uh, they've been, you know, just on a variety of policy things. They've been, they, 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 I think last, the last one referred to like union bosses or something like that, you know, uh, yes. like this sort of slander against like, um, just reminder to your listeners, all union leaders are elected either directly or by people who are elected. So, you know, the boss is unelected. The boss is the guy maybe you work for. Nobody elected him. So the idea of calling labor unions union bosses, I've always thought was just a gross slander. But you imagine that in your official political party political document, you know. So uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's sad. I'd like to see it go the other direction. We'll just see. Uh, yeah, you still there? Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, yeah, a Democratic Party. I mean, you laid out a real strong case. Uh, I was very upset by uh, the speakers at the Democratic convention um, and uh, I got called to task on that, uh, dogpiled, as I call it. Um, uh, I, I think the I, to me, the benchmark for uh, where the Democratic Party, for whatever reason, um, turned astray, turned away from the FDR legacy. Uh, the benchmark to me was uh, Carter's uh, transportation bills, which were sponsored by Kennedy, uh, Ted Kennedy, and Cannon out of Nevada, you know, a Democrat out of Nevada. Um, yeah. and, 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 you know, that that to me is, is, a, a, is a precise point you could point at, that you can mark. And then the overall embrace of neoliberalism. Uh, Don, you give me a lot, of, a lot of time here. I really appreciate it. And uh, rest assured, I'm going to bug you again as we get down here. And uh, one of these, these days, I'm going to uh, be good for my word uh, next time. And if not the next time, um, I'm in Longview, Kelso, great union uh, area. Um, I'll try to look you up and we'll have a beer, maybe in the Pearl District. All right, Don McIntosh with Northwest Labor Press, lifelong union activist, a labor journalist. Don, uh, I hope you and your family are, are safe and well under these crazy times. Uh, I hate to say it, but the way I put it, all the horses have not been let loose yet. So, uh, you know, keep your hat on. Please. All you got to do is put your uh, email in the little box on the right, and you'll get uh, our, our online edition twice a month. Uh, there's not a lot of other papers like it, so I encourage people who are interested to check us out. Oh, I think there's very few quite like it. Uh, email, again, I just loved uh, I'm looking right at my print edition. But, you know, I grew up in Chicago in the 60s. Uh, we had three daily newspapers. So, you know, I'm still old school on that. God bless you, Don. And and uh, uh, and uh, thanks to your spouse for letting us use her uh, uh, landline. <laughs> It, it got there you too now. Bye.